Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Wednesday, November 22nd. Israel has been at war for 47 days. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at FTD, and welcome back to the FTD Morning Brief. As always, our goal is to do the hard work for you. My colleagues and I are up before the sun rises every day, catching up on all the news that happened overnight. You can't possibly expect it to read all that, but that's what we do. We are policy wonks with insomnia. So tell your friends, tell your family as you gather around that Thanksgiving table. FTD starts your day three days a week with all the foreign policy news you need in just 20 minutes right here at FTD.org. This morning, I'll be joined by former Israeli National Security Advisor Eyal Hulata. But before that, here is what we're tracking. A hostage deal is imminent. According to Hamas official Musa Abu Marzouk, it will take effect at 10 a.m. local time tomorrow, 3 a.m. here on the East Coast of the United States. It will include several Americans, according to a Biden administration official. Explosions were reported a short time ago in Damascus. The regime claims to have intercepted several Israeli missiles. The Israeli government has neither confirmed nor denied. Iran's foreign minister visited Lebanon today, and he is en route to Qatar. The region, uh, the regime's supreme leader today once again threatened Israel's destruction. We'll continue to watch these stories, but here are your top three headlines to watch today. Headline number one. The Israeli government late last night approved a hostage deal with Hamas. Here's what we know. There are at least 50 Israeli civilian hostages set to be released, maybe even 80. They will be primarily women and children taken from their homes on October 7th. Men of fighting age, uh, 18 to 50, will not be included. In exchange, roughly 430 Palestinian prisoners are set to be released from Israeli jails. Those slated for release are said to not have blood on their hands. In addition, the Israelis will allow for more humanitarian assistance and fuel to enter the Gaza Strip. Last but not least, there will be an entire day of ceasefire for every 10 Israeli hostages released. The ceasefire is expected to last between four to seven days. So now what? The Israeli government has long been uh, willing to make painful concessions in order to save the lives of its citizens. But this pause in fighting could come at an even steeper cost. Hamas will undoubtedly take this time to regroup and rearm for the battles that await in central and southern Gaza. Israel can also be expected in, uh, to see increased pressure from the United States and the international community to wind down its war after a pause in the action. The Israelis are not likely to accept this. They are still weeks away, maybe months, from achieving their goal, which is the total destruction of the Hamas terrorist organization after the 10-7 attack that left 1,200 dead. Headline two, the Israeli military breached the blast door in a Hamas tunnel under Shifa Hospital yesterday. Here's what we know. As IDF spokesman Jonathan Conricus detailed on Monday's brief, the Israeli military continues to make slow and steady progress in the infrastructure beneath Gaza's largest hospital. The progress is a little too slow and steady for the Israeli public, which is eager to prove to skeptical international media that there is in fact a subterranean Hamas command center that lives beneath. Former Prime Minister Ehud Barak appeared yesterday on CNN and triggered a firestorm when he told Christian Amanpour that Israel actually built underground structures at Shifa. Hamas has exploited those structures for military purposes now for more than a decade. So now what? The debate has reached a fever pitch. 
Although mainstream media and American NGOs have actually reported Shifa's military use since 2006, many of those same outlets and NGOs have joined a campaign to cast doubt on Israel's claims. Israel, for its part, has now gone on the offensive against the World Health Organization, claiming the UN agency deliberately ignored Hamas terrorist activities at Shifa and other hospitals across the Gaza Strip. The IDF released a graphic yesterday claiming that five hospitals in northern Gaza serve as military facilities. This includes the Indonesian hospital where IDF forces were operating as recently as this morning. The Indonesian government has not responded to this allegation. And finally, headline three, the Associated Press quoted an unnamed senior American official last night as saying that he hopes the pause in Gaza will lead to a full pause in hostilities in Lebanon. So here's what we know. The Iran-backed Hezbollah terrorist organization has been firing rockets, missiles, and drones at Israel since the day after the 10-7 attack. I don't believe there is an official count, but back-of-the-envelope estimates are somewhere around 600 different attacks. Israelis have been killed and injured. Property has, has been destroyed. This comes amid, amidst an uptick in missile attacks by the Iran-backed Houthi terrorist group, not to mention the pirating of commercial ships in the Red Sea. So now what? The Israelis have been under no illusions from the start. Iran is behind this war. Hamas is a proxy of Iran. So is Hezbollah. So are the Houthis. So are the militias attacking the U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. They all receive weapons, training, and cash from the Islamic Republic, which is content to fight Israel to the last Palestinian, the last Lebanese, the last Yemeni. If the fighting on other fronts continues after Gaza goes quiet, Iran will have fully shown its hand. This could impact Israel's strategy moving forward. It could also impact America's military posture in the region. Those are your headlines. I'm now pleased to welcome former Israeli National Security Advisor Eyal Hulata to discuss the latest on the hostage deal. Eyal is FDD's inaugural Senior International Fellow. He previously served as Israel's National Security Advisor and head of the National Security Council under Prime Ministers Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. Welcome, Eyal. And uh, talking to everybody. Uh, just came back from Israel yesterday morning, so <laughs> it's um, yeah, uh, a lot to talk about. So let's start. Okay, let's start, Ayal. So let's just first, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to hear your impressions. You haven't been back to Israel now for several months. You watched the 10-7 attack unfold from here in Washington, D.C. What were your impressions upon returning? Um, so I have to say, I guess I've been out of Israel since uh, uh, late uh, July. Um, and it's not like I left a calm country, right? I mean, Israel was in, in, in internal... Uh, friction and uh, um, a lot of, of, of bad feelings and even some kind of desperation even before I left. By the way, regardless of political affiliation, I think everybody felt that uh, things were not going the way they should uh, in all aspects. But of course, uh, after October 7th, um, um, it, it's a different country. I mean, I, I could, I, I recognize the place, I recognize the people. Um, I must confess, everybody seemed very sad very in agony, a lot of agony. Everybody knows someone either from the attack or from the soldiers. Uh, so many reservists are now uh, uh, called upon and, and in active duty. And, and this, this puts everybody very, very uh, tense. They all know that there are things we'll deal later. Um, and they're also afraid of that because at the moment, Israel is, is very 
uh, unified in, 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 in the ways that we know. I mean, this is the country I know. This is the people I love. When we are in, in crisis mode, we stick together and, and, uh, um, um, and we rely on each other. There's a quote that I heard of someone saying that the Israelis feel as if they are orphans because their leadership doesn't function. Um, but as brothers and sisters, they stick together to, to, hold, uh, to hold the line. And, and this is what I saw. This is what I felt everywhere I went. A lot of um, um, a lot of anger in within, which would probably we'll see it come out. But at the moment, uh, everybody's unified and and with a very clear mission. We need to need we, we need to to win this war, um, um, and we need to get the hostages back, and, and to deal with the rest afterwards. Yeah, I think it's probably the right move to not let politics creep into this just yet. But I certainly can see it bubbling beneath the surface. Well, let's move to the deal itself. Um, I, I think we know the basics about exactly what is set to transpire at 10 o'clock local time tomorrow uh, in Israel and in Gaza. But let's talk about how it was reached uh, from the Israeli perspective. Who negotiated it? Who is implementing it? How did this play out uh, in the Israeli bureaucracy? Right. So um, there was a, an understanding from, from the outset that this is something that needed to be uh, dealt with uh, heavily. And a lot of people, uh, both officials and former officials, uh, uh, stepped up um, uh, into this. There was an understanding that Hamas, uh, having just uh, snatched them from their beds, would not give them easily, right? It wasn't... Um, uh, uh, this is not a humanitarian deal for Hamas. This is a deal, a, r- a real deal for, for Hamas. And we knew that, everybody knew that from the beginning. Um, the um, um, I was coordinating the negotiations when I was national security advisor for, for the four hostages we had at the time, two dead soldiers, Adal Goldin, Oron Shaul, and two civilians, Vera Mangisto and Isham Said. I don't think there's anyone who can tell all, all of the names of all of the hostages. At the moment... Um, but, but of course, there are the 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 usual um, mediators or um, uh, facilitators of, of the negotiations when it comes to Hamas, and that's Egypt and and Qatar. We can talk about uh, the role of Qatar uh, uh, in a second. But this is how this started. Uh, there are many people in the Israeli system who have connections in Qatar. There are many people in the Israeli system who have connections with Egypt, and I think that the first couple of weeks, uh, um, uh, in light of of the dysfunction, the, the general dysfunction of, of the systems that we have uh, were very confusing. Uh, and we paid a lot of time uh, while people try to find their location and try to understand what they were doing. Israel did not have an appointed um, a coordinator for, for the appeal for the prisoners of war and missing in action. Um, and, and Gal Hirsch was appointed, I would say, kind of, of hastily, but um, uh, this position is now held. Uh, the military, they took them a little bit uh, until they appointed two generals to deal, one with the missing ones and one with the the um, uh, the casualties because of, of the numbers, two very uh, profound generals, Nitzan Alon, General Alon, who is dealing with the hostages, and, and General Carmel, Elio Carmel, who is dealing with uh, with the families of, of, uh, of the injured, of the dead. Uh, and this started to materialize. And of course, Mossad, head of Mossad, is the, the major counterpart uh, to the Qataris, uh, David Barnea at the moment. You may have seen in the press there was some rift. If Yossi Cohen, his, his uh, predecessor, would do this. And, and you know, I mean, I, I know this guy's very well. Uh, uh, 
and it, it didn't it didn't uh, uh, start uh, very good. I think at the moment it's very clear there was one head of Mossad at a single point in time. His name is David Barnea, and he's dealing with the Qataris, well coordinated with Ronen, the head of Shin Bet, and with uh, Herzi, the, the the Joint Chief of Staff. So this is kind of about the background. Uh, the, the first time there was a deal on the table was about three weeks ago. Um, um, it, it wasn't very similar. I mean, the numbers were similar to what we see now. The the concept of 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 about a day of of, of truce per ten, and, um, um, and and the focus on on women and children. This was uh, cleared, I think, in in the very beginning. But it took time because Hamas, of course, once they felt that there was confusion on the Israeli side, and they felt some leverage. And I, I think the Qataris did not feel the pressure that I think they should have felt. Uh, not only from Israel, but from the the international community, and and, and of course of the, from the Americans, and all that g- gave Hamas some uh, feeling that they have leverage, that they can play for time, they can squeeze more demands, and the Israeli system, rightfully so, I think, uh, um, uh, uh, did not uh, cave on this, and and we came back to to the demands from the beginning, which is, uh, I hope all the women and children will need to see because we didn't get the numbers yet, uh, a truce and not a ceasefire. Um, uh, with an, a recognition that Israel will continue uh, uh, the, the, the fighting uh, after uh, this pause. Uh, this is also something that we will need backing and legitimacy from the international community. So this is this is how this was formed. And now that, um, uh, as it seems, as I understand, Hamas uh, agreed to return to the initial conditions. Uh, this was put to the cabinet, which is a whole different story. You may have seen this. Of course, nothing is easy in Israel, but ultimately it was approved very late at night. Um, and tomorrow morning, if all goes well, we'll start seeing the hostages out. Okay, thanks, Ayal. Um, a couple uh, further questions for me. Um, just briefly, is it safe for Israel to negotiate with the Qataris? I mean, we, we obviously know this is a, uh, a state sponsor of uh, Hamas. Of course, we also know they're state sponsors of other terrorist uh, groups as well. Um, they're not exactly allies of Israel here. So are, are they are they a good interlocutor for the Israelis to work with? Or is there just simply no other choice? This is where Hamas wants to, to, to conduct these talks. Right. So that's a good question because Israel has been working with Qataris uh, in, in a Mossad lead. When I was Mossad, uh, um, um, that was also uh, happening. Uh, I wasn't directly involved in this, but of course, uh, um, for, for more than a decade now, uh, Qatar... Is as you say. I mean, they're ruled by Islamic uh, uh, Brotherhood, um, and um, um, and their connection with Hamas is is profound. Hamas uh, foreign or um, they have a um, an inbound leadership and an outbound leadership, and, and the outbound leadership they live in Doha, Hania, Mashal. Uh, this is where they found themselves uh, over the years, and and this this did complicate uh, things. Um, but it also made Qatar the most influential uh, country as it comes to, to Hamas. Egypt, of course, uh, um, is the neighbor and, and is very important for that. But the, the Egyptian leverage over Hamas is not as high and not as strong as the levers that, that Qatar has because of the funding, because of the money. Qataris have been funding civilian operations or civilian uh, uh, operations. Yeah, operations in Gaza for for many years. Unfortunately, they were also funding military operations in the military branch, and they'd done so while colluding with the Iranians, and a host of things that Israel knew about, but not necessarily could stop uh, for a host of reasons. So, is it safe? Nothing is safe. Nothing is safe in this. At the moment, this is the option we have. 
I can tell you that I myself have tried to create alternatives to the Qataris, trying to convince other countries in the Gulf to step up and do this. I'm talking about years back, not now. Um, and they refuse to do so because it's a mess. And the Qataris are always happy to be there when there is a conflicting interest and ability for them to shine. Uh, uh, this uh, gives them good uh, uh, credibility and gives them good posture also in this country, in the United States. And, and they use that very, very well. They're very skilled in that. So it is what it is. There is no other option. Uh, um, and hopefully it will it will uh, uh, play out the way we want it. And if Hamas does, if we do end the war the way we should, when Hamas is no longer governing Gaza, then it won't really matter what the Qataris can can do in this regard. I hope that other countries will step up. Okay, last question for you, Ayal. Um, you know, th- there are people in Israel right now who criticize this deal. There aren't many. Uh, I think it's 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 widely viewed that uh, the hostages need to come home. But there are risks associated with this deal, giving Hamas the time and space. How would you game this out right now uh, if you give Hamas four, five, six days uh, of uh, of time to regroup? What does that mean for Israel moving forward? Right. So there, there are uh, criticism, I think, from three uh, different uh, angles and, and, and also um, uh, uh, different interests and, um, and positions. The first one has to do with the hostages themselves. I mean, we're getting 53, I think, and maybe uh, uh, 30 more in, in batches of, of 10. What does that say about the possibility of getting everybody out? This is not an all for all deal. Uh, there is some criticism from that angle. I think it's it's relatively uh, limited because there was no option for an all-for-all deal. Uh, um, and my argument was we need to get a, a large group now and all of the women and children uh, uh, now so that when we have another round of, of demanding for truce, uh, we'll have another option. Otherwise, this will be the deal that will be negotiated uh, at the end. So this is that angle and it's there. I think the families understand. Of course, they will be angry when they see who comes out and who doesn't come out. And this is a, a political burden for Netanyahu which brings me to the second part of, of, of criticism, and, and that is that is political. I mean, everything is political. In any country, everything is political in Israel. Uh, uh, and there were voices within the government that they will not be able to sustain the pressure after this deal uh, 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 comes. Netanyahu, I was, I was actually worried that, that this might be stronger, but Netanyahu um, uh, decided to go ahead with the deal uh, and push back some of this uh, um, a political, I would say, less... Uh, justified from from I think uh, all perspectives uh, to that we have a chance to bring them home we need to bring them home and there was there will be political backlash well there is political backlash and he will need to deal with it the third angle of of, of criticism is operational and I have to say that this is I think this is the, the largest dilemma that the cabinet the war cabinet needed to deal with uh, because we are going into a truce uh, uh, and I'm sure that there are some in the international community who view this as the beginning of the ceasefire and will demand Israel not to resume fighting uh, on this truce. Uh, and, uh, and I, I think that Hamas will try to play the 10 per, per day uh, option that isn't within the deal uh, for that matter and try to extend it as long as possible. If that happens and Israel doesn't continue to fight, then it means that we haven't achieved both of the goals because we did not eradicate Hamas uh, from ruling role in Gaza. And we also did not get all of the hostages back, as I said before. And, and those are the goals that... Are, are completely justified, completely legitimized, you know, across the political border in Israel and the international community. That's the risk. I think on that, the War Cabinet, what they decided as a group of five is to say that we will stand the pressure, we will re, uh, uh, re-engage in, in fighting after this ends. They all trust Netanyahu that he didn't give promises that he didn't tell them uh, uh, while doing this, and and uh, uh, and this will be important to see 
uh, when we come ahead so that we can continue this. And if this is the scope, I think the deal is completely not only legitimate, but also uh, uh, moral. Uh, uh, I think if we hadn't taken that, uh, we would have betrayed our people yet again. For 45 days, children and women, also men, of course, but children and women and elderly and handicapped have been uh, uh, in, in tunnels underneath Gaza uh, without the proper conditions that they need to live, and we have to be taken aback. Uh, uh, it, I think this is the most painful aspect of October 7. We, as a system, you know, I feel as part of the system, we have failed our citizens. It is the role of the military to defend uh, uh, from enemies. Soldiers, if God forbid there is a war, need to die to save civilian lives. And in this conflict, in this uh, uh, horrific incident, we have about three times more civilians uh, uh, dead than, than soldiers. It's, it's mind-blowing uh, for everybody. So I think this is completely justified. But the risk are there, as you said, and hopefully... Uh, we'll be able to re-engage. All right. Well, Al, we're going to leave it there. Thank you for joining us. We'll have you back. Appreciate you joining the FDD Morning Brief today. You're welcome. Okay. Here are the other stories FDD is following closely today. My colleague Bethnam Bentalablu is tracking an American strike on a mobile launcher used by Iran-backed fighters uh, that fired a medium-range ballistic missile at an American airbase yesterday. U.S. troops in both Iraq and Syria have been attacked 66 times since October 17th. That's 32 attacks out of Iraq and another 34 out of Syria. More than 60 American servicemen have sustained injuries so far. The Biden administration respond, has responded primarily by striking munitions depots and other lower value targets. At this point, it's fair to ask whether these responses have encouraged Iran and its proxies to continue to test American resolve. My colleague Sinan Gidi is watching reports out of Turkey that the Erdogan regime wants to send another flotilla to Gaza. If you recall, Turkey sent a flotilla to Gaza in 2010. That led to clashes on the high seas and the death of several Turkish extremists. Organizers now say there could be as many as a thousand ships deployed, all with the goal of blocking maritime traffic to Israel. And finally, FDD's Anthony Ruggiero and Andrea Stricker are tracking North Korea's satellite launch yesterday. The Hermit Kingdom, probably with the help from Russia, announced that it put its first military reconnaissance satellite into orbit following yesterday's space launch. Uh, by way of background, Vladimir Putin previously pledged assistance to Kim Jong-un on missile and other military technologies. The Russian strongman continues to look for ways to empower America's adversaries in multiple conflict zones the Russian-Iranian partnership continues to deepen, and Putin's war in Ukraine continues to grind on. You can read about these and other major news stories we track on our website, fdd.org. You can follow our work on X, the, uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter, at FDD. And if you like our work, please do make a contribution at fdd.org backslash invest. If you enjoyed today's briefing, come back and join us again. We'll do this every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. My guest on Friday will be former Director General of the Israeli Ministry of Defense and Israeli Air Force Chief, Major General Amir Eshel. Until then, from all of us to all of you, happy Thanksgiving. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FDD. Mm -hmm.